Are you ready, Christine? I sure am. Are you ready, Ma? Yes, I am. Listen to the story now. You almost messed that up. Always almost messed that up. After hours. After dark. We're after dark out here. Um, We are still sizzling out here. We are going to start this story in Manhattan, 1948. We are doing Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. Rope. This macabre. Mm. Spellbinder was inspired by a real life case of murder. Mm-hmm. What? Two thrill seeking friends strangle a classmate and then hold a party for their victim's family and friends, serving refreshments on a buffet table mm. fashioned from a trunk containing the lifeless body. Oh my God. My God. Macabre. (laughs) Particulous. Rope. It premiered in New York on August 26, 1948. I probably would have gone in October. Did I say October? No, you you said August. I'm just saying I probably would have. Released it maybe October 31st. Yes, yes, understood. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It was released wide September 25th, 1948. There you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there you go. It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock, mm. who also did The Lady Vanishes in 1938, mm-hmm. Rebecca in 1940. We did Rebecca. Uh huh. Suspicion. And Notorious with Cary Grant. And Alfred Hitchcock made 40, 13 films during the 40s. So Damn. I saw this movie when I was in college in my Hitchcock class. And for some reason, I had it in my head that this was later Hitchcock. So my mind was blown that this was 1948. 48. Right. right. So he had done The Lady Vanishes and Rebecca, Suspicion, Notorious. And then for the whole 1940s, he did 13 films. And this is towards the end of the 40s. And then after this film, he does stuff like Rear Window, The Man Who Knew Too Much, North by Northwest, mm. Psycho, and Torn Curtain. And those are all the films that we've done so far. So I was just really surprised by how early this was from what I remembered it. And also, I like this movie way more now than I did when I watched it in class. Because I'm not... I wasn't sitting in an uncomfortable desk. And I I remember being extremely sleepy (laughs) watching this film. And I think it was probably also on VHS. I remember not really liking the way that it looked and the colors. And it, it... I was much more enthralled in this film watching it now i will say excuse me for interrupting the um the set decoration like the living room did look like a 60s living room to me yeah it looks a lot more um modern than the 40s right yes and and the curtain situation Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. yeah i was surprised it was 48 as well the screenplay is by author Lorenz, who produced 
West Side Story, and Gypsy on Broadway, wrote Anastasia, The Way We Were, and Anna LaCosta. And nerd alert, Alfred Hitchcock hired him to Americanize the British play that this is based on. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he was dating, author was dating Farley Granger, who we'll get to in a few. Right. At the time, and his big thing was that he had to figure out how to make audiences aware the three main characters were gay without saying so because of the Hayes Code. code. Mm -hmm. Mm. And author Lorenz is not sure if Jimmy Stewart ever knew his character was gay. I could see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And which is okay. Okay, we'll get into it more. It's adapted by Hume Cronin. Which I, I saw. I, I saw that, and I was like, "Wait, Hume Cronin, husband of Jessica Tandy, from Fried Green Tomatoes fame? They yes. were married from 1942 to until Jessica Tandy's death in 1994. Yeah. He was an actor. Um, he was in Under Capricorn, and well, I think he wrote that uncredited, and then acted in Brewster's Millions, Shadow of a Doubt, Lifeboat, The Seventh Cross, and Cocoon." Cocoon, yes. And this is based on the 1929 play Rope by Patrick Hamilton, who also wrote the play Gaslight, that the film Gaslight is based on. Oh, okay. It was, pl- it was obvious it was a play, I mean, to me. Right. You know, with all my knowledge. It was inspired by the real-life 1924 murder of 14-year-old Bobby Franks by (gasps) University of Chicago students Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, known as Leopold and Loeb. Yes. Yes, I listened to a podcast series about Leopold and Loeb, and... um, it when I was watching this movie, I'm like, oh yeah, they're they're basically Leopold and Loeb. There was one who was very dominant, and mm-hmm. the other one who was more of the submissive. And they pretty much believed that they could get away with murder. And 14 year old Bobby Franks was killed, and they got caught because they weren't as smart as they thought they were. Ah. Um, it's edited by William H. Ziegler who also edited The Music Man, My Fair Lady, and Strangers on a Train. The director of photography, there's two. There's Joseph A. Valentine, who did Saboteur, Shadow of a Doubt, and Bride for Sale. And William V. Skull, who did Two Guys from Texas, Quo Vadis, Q-U-O-V-A-D-I-S. Q-U-O-Gavadis. Ooh, yes. That sounds good. And The Half Breed. Oh. <laughs> Starring James Stewart as Rupert Cadell. Um, he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939, The Shop Around the Corner in 1940, mm-hmm. The Philadelphia Story in 1940, and It's a Wonderful Life in 1946. And that, like, there are other movies, but those are the big so ones. Many. And then, then so he does many. this he film. He's standing by the toilet. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought I muted. I believe. Wait, may I have a moment? Oh, no, it's me. May no, I you have a moment. Oh, no, I thought I pressed my button. 
Tommy's standing by the toilet. I could just see them in the background of Zoom standing by the toilet for fresh water. <laughs> <laughs> he's just poor dog. Oh, and you thought you pressed the button? Yeah. Oh, this is the way we're going tonight. <laughs> After hours. All right. All right. After it's spicy. So then he does this film. So this is kind of... It was just interesting to me that he did Philadelphia Story in 1940, and this was just eight years later. I just thought that was very interesting. And then he goes on to do Harvey, Rear Window, Vertigo, Anatomy of Murder. He did four films in 1948. Call, Northside 777, On Our Merry Way, You Gotta Stay Happy, and Rope. Hmm. So. Of those, I just know rope. But I just thought it was very interesting because he, I guess he was around 40 at this time, but he seemed much younger than, uh, this goes back into my weird thing where I thought this was much a later film. And then to see him, I'm like, wait, he's so much younger. What's going on? We have John Dahl as Brandon Shaw. He was in Gun Crazy Spartacus and The Corn is Green. Which, okay. Farley Granger that I mentioned at the time, he was um, with author Lorenz. Farley Granger as Philip Morgan. He was in Strangers on a Train, They Live by Night, and The North Star. Joan Chandler as Janet. She was in Humoresque, Drag Strip Riot. And Nerd Alert, she was one of the founding members of the actor Studio. Oh, outstanding. Mm -hmm. We have Sir Cedric Hardwick who was Mr. Kentley. He was in Lourdes, which we did. The Ten Commandments and Suspicion. And we have Constance Collier as Mrs. Atwater. She was in Shadow of a Doubt, Stage Door. Nerd Alert, she, according to Wikipedia, is the first person to be treated with insulin in Europe. Wow. She was also friends with Catherine Hepburn. And she was an acting coach to Audrey Hepburn, Vivian Lee, and Marilyn Monroe. Oh. And upon her death, her private secretary, Phyllis, became Catherine Hepburn's private secretary. So Catherine Hepburn inherited Phyllis, the secretary. Wow. In 1955, and she was Catherine Hepburn's secretary for 40 years. And I think if you watch the, I think it's, call me Kate at what point there's which Phyllis I'm pretty sure it's Phyllis she's getting older and Catherine Hepburn like says something to her and like Phyllis finally like stands up for herself and is like no I will not do that and so I thought that was funny I was like oh man she she was just been in the game for so long and we have Edith Evanson as Mrs. Wilson she was the maid she was also in Citizen Kane Shane and the day the earth stood still. And those are the particulars. Outstanding. The movie starts with a still shot of three apartment buildings in an ups- in upscale Manhattan. We have a shot of a rooftop and a window and then a scream. It was an odd scream. We see two men are strangling a third man with a piece of rope putting the body in a huge wooden trunk and discussing what to do next. One man, Brandon, is overly confident and one man, Philip, is hesitant about everything. 
Mm. What could go wrong? So much. So much. So, uh, 1948, guess what, people? POC. Zip. We didn't even leave the house. Yeah, not even the help. So, cast. I don't have cast, but I have extreme elitism. Jeannie, do you have cast? Well, I'm going to say that this whole film, like, the whole reason that they go about murdering my man is because they they claim that their intellect entitled them to murder inferior people. Oh, yeah. that's true. What yeah. more can I say? Wait, you're right. I wrote that down. And I thought it was a great equivalent to the other quote we have. Yes. The few are those men of such intellectual and cultural superiority that they're above the traditional moral concepts. Good and evil, right and wrong, were invented for the ordinary average man, the inferior man, because he needs them. Yeah. And so what makes someone, what is the difference? Like what, how are you able to tell? Who is inferior? Who is inferior and who isn't? That's what caste is. And the caste in the United States that and from Europe that has been exported around the world is that the closer you are to white, the more at the top you are. I mean, it's basically this film is just basically about how white people <laughs> are allowed. And it's white people, but then it's the it's the okay. What first, how do you get through the velvet rope? Because they mentioned they reference a velvet rope. How do you get through the velvet rope? First, skin color. Are you are you white? Yes. Then are you intellectually superior? Are you smarter than the average white person? Then you are allowed to kill. And so like this this whole film, I was just like, oh, it's completely cast. You have to keep in mind, and we'll get into it soon with the nerd alerts that World War II had only ended three years prior to this coming out. The Holocaust had just, I mean, three years before this, they are just finding the the camps and we're making light of murdering people who we don't think are. Well, and then, and then also... It's in 1948, and if this movie is being screened in America, there are people who are watching this film in segregated theaters. Oh, yeah. Where black people are up in what is referred to as what? The The peanut peanut gallery. gallery. So, and this movie doesn't say any... When I was watching it, I'm just like, oh, okay. And I'm like, okay, this definitely, you know... Because um, the guy's father says, well, that's exactly what Hitler thought. So you definitely yes. see how it's going with that. But it is, it's just very mum and quiet and silent on the Jim Crow-ness that's going on in America. Just crickets on the front of segregation. Oh, yeah. Why would they need to address that? that? Yeah, exactly. So it's just basically... And then it's pretty much the history of... I don't know what it would be called, but like the modern world of like white supremacy is just baked into the theory of like that's why it's okay to kill certain people. 
I, that's why certain people aren't human and it's okay. But it's, it's just wild to me how it's like, oh, but this is what like the Nazis did and stuff. But then you're not going to like look in your own Oh, backyard. yeah. No, we're not worried like, about those people. Exactly. Yeah. But the thing is, in 1948, there were people who caught on to this and who said it. But now if I say oh, really? it, it's, oh, you're looking at it from the eyes of 2023. And they, they that's always what irritates me because it's not like there weren't people in 1948 going, <clears throat> segregation, what the fuck? <clears throat> yeah. Guys. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, they but that's that isn't the huge tapestry that that we have been told. So uh, yeah, this whole film is basically cast. <laughs> All right. So we are to nerd alerts. So do you wanna have any? I don't have any nerd alerts. All right, so it came out in September 1948. Like I said, World War II had just ended three years ago. So it's basically like us to the pandemic, you know? Okay. And that good, seems like... Good analogy. Yeah, that seems like just yesterday in a way. Speaking of white supremacy, in January, Mahatma Gandhi starts his fast to stop communal violence during the partition of India. Now... The partition of India, that's what happened in 1948. There's so much that goes on in on this that... ah, So basically, Britain gets bounced. Because remember, the British Empire... The sun never set upon the British Empire. So they were in control of India. They get bounced, and they're like, all right, fine. Y'all figure out how to partition India. And... I guess I didn't realize that the British Empire of India wasn't just India. It was also other countries that we know of. So what basically ends up happening in 1948 in the partition of India is that that's when it leads to India. And then it also leads to Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know a whole lot about that region, but I do know that India and Pakistan have beef. And I've always had beef that goes like real deep, deep beef beyond cricket beef. Like that's always kind of one of the things when they talk about countries that have nuclear um, missiles and stuff. It's always like, you know, North and South Korea, India, Pakistan, United States, Russia, like, you know, there's significant beef there. As a result of this, um, there was a lot of religious violence because Pakistan is mostly, well, not mostly, I don't know, but I know that Pakistan Muslim and that there was a lot of different religious and India, I guess, Hindu, so different religions. And when the partitions were going to set the lines, um, it resulted in a lot of like a refugee type situation because there were a lot of people who lived in like, you know, you basically go imagine if you will, like the United States, we're all the United States. And then, mm. you know, California is like, peace out. We're bouncing. And Texas is like, peace out. We're bouncing. And there would be a lot of people I imagine in Austin who would be like, Hey, Austin, Dallas, Houston, who are like, wait a second. 
we gotta get we gotta get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we can't live just in Texas. Right. So that was kind of what was going on. Um, yeah, just to to kind of make it make sense. And so Mahatma Gandhi was all about peace and stuff. And so you wanted it to you wanted like the violence to stop on both sides. Um, so that's why he started his fast to bring attention to that and to be like, hey guys, like everybody just calm down. Then later in the month, he's assassinated in New Delhi because his killer thought that Gandhi was too accommodating to the Pakistan, to the Pakistanis and, and what they wanted. Interesting, his assassin had tried two times already in 1944, but I guess perseverance? Well, there, there's something to be said for that. You know, if at first you don't succeed, that's horrible. It was just, it just sucks. So he tried it two times in 1944, but then on the third charm, there he goes, 1948, kills Mahatma Gandhi. We have NASCAR, which found was founded by Bill France Sr. with other drivers. We have McCollum versus the Board of Education, which was the Supreme, the United States Supreme Court ruled that religious instruction in public schools violated the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. Separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. We have the World Health Organization is established by the United Nations. So who? That was started in 1948. And in 1948... Harry Truman signs Executive Order 9981, which integrates the Army in 1948. Hmm. So the movie theaters that this is shown in, segregated. But the United States Army, now integrated. Hmm. To a degree. You know. The top films, number five, Easter Parade. Number four, Johnny Belinda. Number three, The Pale Face. Number two, Red River. And number one, The Red Shoes. Man, I never heard of any of those. Red Shoes. The Oscars, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We've done that. Oh, we did that. Mm -hmm. The Snake Pit. We're not doing that. Probably not. The Red Shoes. Johnny Belinda, Mm -hmm. and the winner, Hamlet. Oh, of course. But also in 1948, another movie that we did, The Bicycle (gasps) Thief. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or is it Thieves? I forget. You can listen to that. It could be plural. It could be singular. Yep. It was a very good episode. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was just to set the scene of 1948. Just a, and the thing that is not written, but that was there, but that nobody really talks about is that a whole lot of people are coming into a whole lot of trauma. Like, it, yeah. you know, like the war ended. So you got the GIs coming back who just saw crazy things. You got women who were had the stress of keeping the, the family and the homes together, n- you know, not knowing if their loved ones, sons and husbands are alive or not. And then they're going to work. And then they're like, you know what? This like, I kind of like making my own money here. This is uh, kind of uh, nice. And then, then they and I'm come back. And I'm making my own money. So 
I have a say in how the household money is spent. Right. And then the guy comes home and he's seen some things and, and he it's slaps like, her. <laughs> you know, maybe he's drinking. Like it's not like people were talking about their right. um, oh, God, no. mental health. They're like, what did you just see? But you got the GI Bill for white people that you know, the white GIs that came home so they could go to college and and then, you know, get favorable mortgage rates to buy homes and develop generational, generational wealth. wealth, you mm-hmm. know. Okay. Oh, wow. We are two reheatables. Mm. My first negative reheatable. I'm very disappointed that a gay couple is serving champagne in martini glasses. <laughs> oh, so disappointed. So disappointed. Mm. Those were not champagne glasses. But I've seen them a lot. They're martini I mean, glasses. I, I feel like I, I see those glasses more than I see the champagne flutes. That means they're drinking No, martini. no, there's a diff- there is a champagne glass that looks like... Uh, uh, that's more rounded, like a portobello mushroom. Yes, exactly. An oh. inverted portobello mushroom. This was like these the, were the v, triangle. These were the V-shaped ones. Well, I mean, ma, they were murderers. So I know, but they were okay. Janet's tasted men. Okay, she went through Brandon. She went through. Kenneth. Kenneth. And now she's with David. I'm not casting aspersions on any of them, but they did all go to the same prep school. Was it prep school? Yeah. With uh, Jimmy Stewart as their headmaster. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Just yeah, she's saying. got a type. She's got a type that's going to leave her... Um, not really. What it what does he like? I mean, she she has a type, but what what options does he have? And you know, she's not. She's basically we're beating around the bush of saying like she likes gay men, but on what spectrum? And it's not exactly like they can be out and proud in 1948. And so if they are on more of the bi spectrum, then she she if likes on the bi more spectrum, of the men then, who, yeah. Right. Oh, that's okay. Uh, not, not that any of it isn't okay. I'm just saying she might, you know, be frustrated in a few years. Well, and also like, I'm, I'm guessing that maybe it's slim pickings for men <gasps> three years after oh, a world war. Because what's her, I have that in a quote, like, you know, what's her name mentions it, the maid does. And who's to say that this isn't a mutually uh, productive relationship? Who's to say that she's, okay. So, um, (laughs) brooding Philip, I mean, my God, he can be brooding, but does he have to be that brooding? Okay, he just (laughs) killed somebody, but... Wow. I mean, they'd obviously talked about it before. Yeah, I mean. Okay. 
uh, I already brought up elitism right after the Holocaust. Now, okay, save my positive. My negative is the stereotypical gay men. One is overly confident and one is broody. You know, like those are the two extremes of the spectrum, perhaps. Well, especially in 1948. Right, right. I guess you could sum it into like tops and bottoms, right? I'm not gonna. I, I'm not here for. I, 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 and, I, and like if we're just boiling it down into the 1940s. Probably oh, okay. Probably by know? their logic, yes. Yeah. But I don't think. Yeah. There's definitely a, a whole spectrum and cornucopia of gayness but in this because it's also dealing with the do you have to use the tops and bottoms analogy though yeah because that's what like brandon was definitely like well like the the the, yeah the brooding one who was philip or farley granger philip brooding yeah yes he was definitely a bottom and the other guy wait are you reading this the same way i'm reading it because, okay, maybe there's the there's the pitcher and the catcher. <laughs> I feel like by 1948 logic, that's all they knew, and that was the stereotype of them. And I feel, and that's probably what they were doing. Okay. Yeah, because they had in reality, to, it's not like that. Yeah, but there was the Hayes Code, so they had to, and also it's based off of Leopold and Loeb, and that was definitely a dynamic in those understood, two's relationship. Understood. There it's was definitely a dominant and, and there was a submissive. I'm having trouble with. Okay. I did see a video today. It was Pride Weekend in New York City and a lot of other cities across the country this weekend. But I saw a clip of an interview with Dan Levy. That's how you say his name. Yes. And they were talking about Schitt's Creek, so they had like a big part of the parade. And uh, you know, Schitt's Creek is like, you know, iconic pride. You know, they're going to be known for that. And they were talking about, he was talking about, he was like, it's not like we set out to make Schitt's Creek be this thing. But as it started to happen, it's like, it was a show where the gay relationship wasn't one of like, tragedy it's not like they both had these tragedies and fell in love like you know like they were just like two people in love and they got you know and they were showing their relationship and good time and like they were happy and it didn't have to be this tragic thing um and like not media oftentimes doesn't have those kind of relationships right no there was an angst for them there was for the sister and her significant other but uh not for them it was just a it it came together like organically and it just worked so yes nice other negatives um they thought they were going to solve unemployment and poverty with murdering everyone who was poor and (laughs) not and unemployed (laughs) yeah well, that is well, elitist. Yeah, now that you have to pay people for a, an honest yeah. day's work, like 
Yeah. To me, it, it just goes back to that. It's just mm-hmm. the elephant in the room that nobody's really talking about. And then Epic bringing all the damn attention to the body. If they had just put the body in the trunk and left it, nobody would have touched the trunk. Exactly. No, but, he, but he had to. Now that, we got to rearrange the whole room. But yeah, because right. Homeboy is the um, sociopath, psychopath. I don't know. But he's one of them. Yeah, no. he's just like the does not he's gotta care be about smarter anybody than else's. everybody else in the room. Yeah, all of that. And somehow those were my only negatives that I wrote down. Oh, nice. Yeah. I, I like have, the movie. I did too. I I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll watch. Very I'll, ahead of its time, I thought. Mm-hmm. I have for my negative reheatables, just, you know, murder in general. And especially murder because you just think you're allowed to murder. Right. Because yeah. you're so superior. And they... Wait predicted that movie the purge yeah like that's how yeah, like, was, like didn't they? She was, they talked about like just a day where you can go stab everyone or something well yes. that's a i they talk about the nietzsche superman complex thing with he's a philosopher mm-hmm. and he had that but to me you know i'm not a great reader I try and when I was assigned books in school, I really gave it a go. Some of them were quite good, like Song of Solomon. Some of them, like Moby Dick, I tapped out. I was like, I can't do this. Fuck this whale. Call me Ishmael. I don't give a fuck. I'm out. One Sounded of the surprising, like name. yeah, one of the surprising books that I really liked for a majority of it, and then like really tapped out once my man Raskolnikov got sent to Siberia, and there was a whole sex worker thing, but. For a vast majority of crime and punishment, I was in because that's what crime and punishment is about. Is about it's basically a like one of these guys, like Raskolnikov, is the the main character, and he kind of does believe that the same thing of like somebody who is superior of intellect and stuff, they're allowed to murder. And so there's this old woman who lives, I think, in the same building as him and is super annoying, and he gets it into his head like. No, I'm justified. I'm allowed to kill this woman. Nobody's going to miss this woman and all of this. And he murders her. And then he gets sick with fever. And, like, just the guilt just, like, eats away at him. And I remember, like, reading it in high school. And I was just like, yeah, I cannot murder. I can never murder anyone. This is the moment you knew. Yeah, yeah. and I, I really liked it. I was like all into it because I had heard like, oh, crime and punishment. And it's like a, like it's no Moby Dick, but it's still pretty thick. And I was really into it. And then once he like, you know, fessed up to it or got caught or whatever, and he went to jail in Siberia, I was kind of out because I'm like Siberia out. And it kind of became a weird love story. I think I don't even know. I My eyes just moved across the words. I got what I needed to get from Crime and Punishment. And that was the... And that's who the Philip character is. The you thought, oh, you thought yeah. you could just do this and you, in, you know, you would be fine by it, which also brings into the GIs coming home from war who yeah. have, are just, I guess you could say justifiably, you know, like they killed people and they have to deal with that, right. but they killed people in a legal way because it was a war um and that's a whole thing to unpack in and of itself but then like there's still the you took a life and right there's there's 
uh, it's not against the law, but then you have the ethics of it. Yeah, and the and the, how that like weighs on people, and some people are able to deal with it better than other people. It will it, you know, rotted so many people, which mm-hmm. I I could totally understand how that could be. Um, <clears throat> the maid, what was her name, Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Mrs. Wilson. Wilson, when she tells Janet. To go easy on the pate because of the because calories. Because of the calories. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I wanted. Yeah. I forgot to include that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, leave that woman alone. Well, Janet was like, fuck you. Yeah. But also Janet was like, mm, but is she right? Because yeah. everybody, <laughs> like, we all wanted to be that person, but it's also like, this dress is a little tight tonight. Exactly. Okay. Now this is something that it's in the negative reheatables, but I could very easily be talked into it. In fact, I might talk myself into it. Oh. Did you notice, like in the beginning of the apart, the beginning of the apartment? What is it? The foyer? Like there's the front door yes, where people yes, enter. Yes. How the it wallpaper. was. Yeah, it was painted columns. Like yeah. it was. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Like it a colonnade. Seemed, yeah, like. I liked, I kind of liked it, but then I kind of thought it was. I was like, on the fence tacky, as well. Or do I it's like tacky, it? but I kind of like it. I like the feeling that it gives me of just vacation. Yeah, just like a nice That's Mediterranean. Exactly where I was too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my final negative reheatable. These men, these gentlemen, but they're actually not gentlemen. These people. Who's identified? Who were born male, assigned male at birth? <laughs> These guys—they're killers who happen to be gay. They're not gay killers. Right. Right. Um, and so there—I found online the haughty culturalist asked the question: Is it an own goal for Rope's gay coding if the film show the love that dare not speak its name? It's as to connect to a depraved killing. You know what I mean? Like how, like, this is a film in 1948 that it's showing a gay couple, but they're murderers. Right. And so exactly. it was kind of asking, like, is it an own goal? Because that fits into that stereotype mm-hmm. of gay people are deviant and murderers and depraved and all of that. So Mm -hmm. that is kind of um, my negative reheatable is to just be like, these are just men who are killers and they happen to be gay rather than they're not killers because they're gay. Exactly. Right. Okay. So my positive reheatables, that apartment, that Mm -hmm. was a gorgeous apartment. Um, Mrs. Williams, Mrs. Wilson treats them as a, as the couple they are, you know, that she just, she talks about them together. They got up on the wrong side of the bed, like, like anybody, any couple, she's not, um, she, she's not overly effusive and not underly effusive. But, it's yeah. just like talking but, about any couple. She also couldn't be because of the Hayes Code. Like well, it true. had to that's be, true. That's you true. know, yeah. Um, 
Brandon's blue suit. My God, that thing fit him to a T. Mm. To and the it, point where the gun in the pocket was a little bulgy. Well, <laughs> is that a gun in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? But I did feel like Brendan, Brandon, I'm sorry, Brandon is, I felt like he was for the first time able to be himself on camera, you know, like he was free to be who he was instead of playing a, a straight character. Yes. Cause I both of the, like both of them were, um, on the homosexual spectrum. I don't know if they were fully gay or no, because Farley that. Granger, he he was with men and women. And right. Was very I had that one of them that. was bisexual. Mm -hmm. But it just seemed like he um his John Dahl was like this is the first time I'm able to be me mm -hmm. on film. Like he's not covering up mannerisms of mm -hmm. like, oh, I I can't no oh, yeah. like actually and he wasn't overly no know, a but... lot of people who play a gay person is overly But um... he couldn't be that way. Right. Because of the Hayes Code. Right. And so he in the time nineteen forty eight, he couldn't be out in that way, although there were people like George Cukor, who's a director, who people knew that he was a homosexual, but he couldn't code as homosexual. So he couldn't, he would probably spend a lot of time being like, no, don't pick up the cup like that. You know, like, right. like little right. things like that of, um, I forget what, like, like basically like code switching in yeah. his gestures and movements and even how he talked probably, but he couldn't go full into who right because there's also the Hayes code to consider because it that was the death the the tightrope that they had to walk right those are mine um the apartment with those windows I, I wrote it should have been the setting for rear window yeah Ooh. and all that seating I know yes so much seating mm -hmm. very 60s I did like the murder talk. Mm -hmm. I like that it, they, you know, can't talk about being gay, but you sure can't talk, can't talk mm -hmm. about murder. That's mm -hmm. true. Um, and then I thought they had some pretty clever workarounds for the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to lie, I had no idea. I didn't catch on at all, though. I Like, I had to read it afterwards. And maybe I zoned out for a minute, but I didn't. It was news to me. So it, when they were, were like, I believe that whoever would not have known. But when they, from what I read, when they wrote P's and Q's, it's so for peculiars and queers. And they mm -hmm. said P's and Q's a lot in the movie. Really? Mm -hmm. I didn't mm -hmm. know that. There was a lot of stuff too. And when, when I saw it the first time that I didn't, I was like, huh? Oh, I just thought that they were, it code, like it coded to me as, um, rich prep school boys yeah mm -hmm. me too you know? yeah and then um there's one point this is from out.com and it says but the gayest moment in rope might be when rupert confronts the all but out philip i wish i could come straight out with what i want to know unfortunately i don't know anything i merely suspect 
Mm. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I just thought this paragraph, this doesn't really go with that, but it said, Rope certainly treats murder in a ghoulish way. The weapon itself becomes a fiendish joke, but it's the story it's story of one upmanship and intellectual warfare among a particular class of gay men is ultimately universal. Shows extraordinary insights, subtly adversing mid-20th century gay behavior. Observing. Subtly observing mid-20th century gay behavior. Sorry. The film's greatest suspense is in its recognition of secret furtive lust. Certainly Hitchcock and Lawrence knew such hookups as part of modern urban life. Mm-hmm. and um those are my positives i have the scene where the kitchen door is swing because i don't think we've even mentioned it so we said mm-hmm. that this was a play but the whole i guess um what, what it's not a gag but it's the, the whole the, thing Yes, it's supposed to be one the thing. The thing, the hook is that it's also supposed to be like it runs in real time. Right. So it's supposed to be one continuous shot. Although there are a few conventional cuts, but it's done in such a way that it is to to be like real time that we're seeing it. Like one minute of screen time equals one minute of real time. Right. Right. So. One of my favorite things was when the kitchen door swings open and it like closes and it swings open just to see him drop Brandon drop the rope into the what I call people other people call this the junk drawer I call it the up to no good drawer. Mm. Because just like in in um like uh hardware stores there's the oh. up, up to no good aisle. Yeah. You find all of your your tapes and your locks and your gloves. Basically all of your murder accoutrements. Right. Your, in your one. plastic sheeting. Yeah, it's just usually, oh, this is up to no good. And and the kitchen drawer, I'm like, he's up to no good drawer. Um, and then Mrs. Wilson's efficiency when she's cleaning up. <laughs> I know. I clock this and as I was doing my chores on Saturday, I tried to get in her brain. No wasted trips. Exactly. Exactly. And we get to see it the whole time. We're just watching her because as she leaves, she takes something. And as she comes back, she takes something. And we're hearing their conversation about murder and blah, blah, blah. And yet we know that the body is in the trunk. And we're just like, is anybody going to like know? And it's just that weird like Hitchcock thing of it's the suspense and I'm like but I kind of do want them to know because these guys are murderers but then I kind of don't and I'm like why do I kind of not I what is going on so those are my good reheatables okay we are to quotables out of character for him to be murdered they were saying it was out of character for him to be late and, or something oh yeah I don't think you appreciate me Philip. Because he had just said a, a, a quirky thing, you know, like a perfect drop the mic moment, and uh, Philip didn't get it. Yeah, I think you appreciate me. I've heard that so many times. I don't think you appreciate me, Aaron. Well, when you that's... when you drop one of your one well, of your lines, one of my gold star lines. I like this. 
there's too much air in your glass. Means oh. it needs a refill. Oh, that's a good one. Too much air in your glass. There's too much air in your glass. And then when Janet, it, the, when they're talking about Errol Flynn and 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 Janet says, "I'll take Cary Grant myself." Mm-hmm. Others, I have. Can't have everything, can we? Well, that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I'm always excited when I give a party. Yeah. Fun. fun to throw parties. And it is. And you do get a, a little flustered. Yeah. He had, he had a point. I always, Adam hates when, like right before we have people over. Because there's no, there's no amount of cleaning. It can, it can never be clean enough. And nobody notices it but you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. I don't. Yeah, I'm not a party thrower. No, you no. Yeah. I, I did. Mean, I threw the max we are having one, over is maybe five people. <laughs> I threw one party in my old place when I opened the Novak Tiki Shack. Oh yes, you did. And I was like, never again. <laughs> I know it's a lot of work. Yeah. For yeah. what? For who? Um. I've never heard of anyone who doesn't eat chicken. I just thought yeah. that was funny. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it is my go-to. I. Ma notes. I'd hang all incompetents and fools anyway. There are far too many in the world. Oh, I'd yeah. hang all the incompetents and fools anyway. There are far too many in the world. There which... are rude but um, yeah, I'm not going to hang them but I want them out of my way yeah and then <laughs> oh so the German is just coming right out <laughs> well I don't know what the Scottish think about that um it's the it's the darkness that's got you down nobody ever really feels safe in the dark yeah those are mine isn't that the truth, though? Oh, yeah. Adam's not here. I'm not sleeping in the dark. I got the TV on at all times. Got mm. lights on. Got the garbage by the door so that if somebody <laughs> comes in, it's going to make a lot of racket. I, I said it was nice yesterday, and I opened the screen door. And I sent Teeny the picture of it because I have all of the clothes. I have like the my clothes drying thing. Like nobody was gonna run up on me and not right. make so much noise and get caught up. It, it was just ba- basically I home aloneed it with the the booby trap that I sent. Well mm-hmm. done. Mhm. Um. Oh, it's mine. This was what Mrs. Wilson said. Good Americans usually die on the battlefield. Mm, she sure did. But since this was since this movie, I mean, she's basically saying that good Americans are white men. Just gonna put that out there because it wasn't until 1948 that you know the military was integrated. Well, that's true. Which that's true. If I may be dark and cynical for a moment, you. Yeah. I just thought that it was kind of. Like the thinking 
of the white supremacy in America where they're like, okay, we are going to have separate troops. You know, we're not going to integrate the movie. We're going to uh, movie the the military. army, the military, and how they put a lot of black men as cook or driver roles. Mm-hmm. Which, given the you know the history of the United States, I would have thought that they would have just been like, y'all to the front, right? Y'all take the bullets. You know, right. it was just D Day. Yeah, everybody. Like, who's right. first? Yeah. All the black troops first. Take all the bullets. That, so that to me was always a, a weird thing in history yeah. of like, no, you guys are the, are the dry, like, you know, just you're behind the lines and yeah. stuff. And even Hurt me. Yeah. I guess, the, I guess with like the red tails, they were like, oh, it's dangerous. So yeah, they can go up and fly. But it, you would have thought that it would have been, America would have been like, look, these are these are the guys who are taking the bullets first for our boys, and then right. we send our boys in. So I don't, that always to me was just really weird. Um, and yet, well, thank you. And yeah. I, yeah, like I, I guess. I guess. Well, it wasn't for the right reason. Yeah, but like, it kind of worked out. That y'all are too dumb to even like <laughs> realize that. Okay, thank you for that. Um, when he says, which is the cat, which is the mouse? Mm-hmm. After the <laughs> very dramatically breaks his Very glass. dramatically, yeah. That made me... Oh, and then when Mrs. Wilson says, did we wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Or we yes. did wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Mm-hmm. We sure did. And then, I think this was David's father. By which right do you dare to say there's a superior few to which you belong. Or maybe that was Rupert who said that. No, I think ba- that was David's dad. You know, he's basically I gotta, saying, um, this could be controversial, mm. but I, I had a, from David's dad, I had a bit of a, um, I felt like he might've been a Jewish man. Um, there's no, yeah. there was no a physical reason, but it was how he was so appalled by the conversation about. <laughs> hey, the, you would have to be Jewish. <laughs> well, that that at, at least he had he had skin in the game, you know, mm-hmm. that he'd been through enough that it was enough for him to actually say something in this company of people who were all totally buying into this conversation and a lot of times to be able to to stop and say yeah i have a problem with that that in a social situation can be kind of difficult so if you had skin in the game then you would understand it more i don't know that was just my feel yeah but i would think that that he doesn't have to be like Jewish to have skin in the game. Like because because it had been the it had been just the atrocities. Because he was there for both. Right. So he was definitely a a learned man and a man of of the high of I would say like a superior intellect and right. would know 
Like because he, he so. said he he said he was like that's the same thing that Hitler said. So it doesn't. Mm. He did I guess, indeed. I, yeah, I don't want it to be like oh that's the only reason is because he like coded as Jewish in some way right. and that's why he like took it personal. It's more of like no he he had been. Yeah, he had been through all these years of hearing this Nazi bullshit, and it's like these are the same reason. Like, like what the fuck are you talking about? Right, I like, like you're a young asshole. What the like, honestly, yeah. what the fuck do you know about these things? Sitting here talking about this, all the like, you know, we've had we've lost all these millions of people fighting over somebody who believed this exact nonsense. Mm. Fuck you, like what the fuck. Like, mm. honestly, what the... See, I can get worked up about it, and I'm not even there. I know, but, yeah, okay. But he did it in such a, a controlled way. Okay, yeah. I it, like uh, it better that way than... Yeah, okay. Yeah, so. but I, I kind of wondered, because it didn't make me think the same thing, too, so you're not alone in oh, that. okay. But then I was like, but why do I think this? Okay, is that everybody's uh, quote? Uh, wait. Yeah. Yes. Quote. Okay, so my LVP is Brandon, such a self-confident asshole. Brandon. Um, mine is genocide. No, that's oh, a, yeah. ouch. That's a good one. <laughs> just I don't know. There was just a bunch of Nazi talk, and then these little fuckers talking about trying to, you know. You're right. They they were they were the one. They should be fine to murder people because they're right. the better ones. Right. That was my LVP. Yeah. And yeah, Teeny's right. My honorable mention was Philip, but my real one was the same as Ma was Brandon. Like you murder. Like you murder someone and everyone knows when they're when they're looking for David, they're like, who is the last person to see him? Exactly. It's in your apartment. Right. You know that that was the last meeting. Then you invite his parents over. I know. And then you change it so that it that they're like dining off of that. Yes. And then you it's just real disgusting. And then just to make it. Then you invite this guy over who is like the one guy who basically knows when you're lying to come mm -hmm. over and like so you can prove that it's just these two fuck boy of the year nominees. Mm, yeah. Fuck boy I mean of the year. Right? Yes. They're just disgusting. At least the one thing is that Philip had the, you know, went through the crime and punishment whole, like, what have I done kind of thing. But, like, Brandon, that mm -hmm. dude is, he has, he has no, he should, he should have been born a Nazi. Should have been born over in Germany. Fit right but in, does he all know the what the Nazis did to gay people? Well, you think that there weren't gay Nazis? True. <laughs> Well, they were dressed very well. I mean, you know, they got impec their impeccable uniforms and stuff. He just would have been fine. Just give him some meth and let him go on his merry way. Because only a, only a gay man would be comfortable wearing those those britches that went into the boots but had all that material on the hips. 
Well, those are, aren't those like riding pants or something? I don't know, but n- no woman would wear that extra material on their hips. I've, oh, well, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I, th- mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen it because that's a horse riding thing. Yes. But they wore, when they were at horse riding, they were just being, look at me, I'm gorgeous. Uh, okay, enough with the Nazis. So my MVP was Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> oh not, my god! He did it so well, though. I mean, I, I, I actually said the dude playing Brandon, John Dahl, because he did it so well. He, he did, did. It perfection. He was pretty, and his hair was always perfectly quaffed. I was, I did stare at it a bunch. I, I, I was. Just the architecture of it. Exactly. Like, exactly. How does it do that? It's a very Conan did, O'Brien-esque in the And height. absolutely no lint on that blue suit. And that blue suit fit him to perfection. He was such a good evil person. Mm. Yes. Mine at first was the apartment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it was a continuous shot. The camera work was just incredible to mm-hmm. me. And listen was, to you. Yeah, listen who is she? Film school. Um, the film school of Aaron Bush. And <laughs> $90,000, please. <laughs> and so I had a tasty titty about it. Um, since the filming times were so long, everybody on the set tried their best to avoid any mistakes. And mm-hmm. at one point in the movie, the camera dolly ran over and broke a cameraman's foot, but to keep filming, he was gagged and dragged off the set. <laughs> Don't then, make a noise. Yeah. Another time, a woman put her glass down but misses the table, and a stagehand had to rush up and catch it before the glass hit the ground. And both parts are used in the final cut. I know. I meant to look mm-hmm. for that. I, I know. And I meant to look for that, but then I forgot. And that was my MVP. Excellent. That's funny because my MVP, my honorable mention is Alfred Hitchcock. But my yes. real MVP is the crew. The electrical oh, department yeah. that's head by the gaffers. They're the ones that run the lights. You got right. the grips who are the ones that do the rigging and setting up of the light equipment, the sound department, the camera department, because all of that had to be a choreographed dance that they had exactly. to do. And the reasons that the the shots ranged from four and a half minutes to 10 minutes is that 10 minutes was the maximum that a film magazine can hold. You only get ah. 10 minutes. So ah. if you used to go to the film, to the films, to the movies like in the 90s, you would see in the upper right-hand corner, there would be like a cigarette burn. And it would go like, boop. And then there would be another one, boop. And that was because you would, the camera projector person would actually have to physically switch the reels because those are called reels. Mm. So like movies didn't come in one huge reel and they just slap it on and go. It would come in, I mean, divide, you know, two hours by 10 minutes. And that's how many, you know, actual roles there were so there would be projectors and the projector would be rolling and the projectionist would have to oh would have to oh. keep going <laughs> my watch Siri shut up 
would have to, um, you know, would, would move it and then would have to look for the cigarette marks and stuff. And that's, I don't think that they do that anymore now with like the digital projections yeah. and stuff. But that's why it had to, you know, you got 10 minutes and everybody had to, I could see that it was like, um, you, you know, like a, um, like almost like a sporting event kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You get one shot and everybody is on their A game and they don't want to be the one that lets down the team. And, and it was 1948, so who knows what <laughs> what punishment could happen to That's you. True. You know, oh boy getting his foot, just gagging him up. <laughs> so, yeah. It was pretty good. And the background, like the clouds were done with fiberglass and... Um, this was Alfred Hitchcock's first color film, so oh, really? just getting the colors right and the lighting right for as because it's supposed to like the time's supposed to progress, so the right. sunlight setting and getting all of that down, and then the actors, you know, knowing their lines, hitting their marks because you know when you watch a play, it's complicated as well because the actors have to hit all their marks, but then there were so many camera movements and also. Right. All of that, it's sound, so it's recording live sound as well. So all of those movements and everything has to be done silently. So they had to make sure that everything was lubricated properly. You knew where everybody was going. So there was just so such a ballet of things that it's just, oh, what a headache. But real cool if you can pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we are to recasting, and I didn't do one. So, Erin, do you have a recasting? I did. I did a recasting. Ooh. I did a stunt recasting. I recasted with the cast of Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson. Oh, how was okay. it? I, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, so I just like, like, you get me, Take like, me Jeffrey away. Rush. Yeah, Jeffrey Rush talking Wes Anderson dialogue. You're going to have me every time. I have to see it again, though, because there's so much that's going on that I I know that I missed a lot. But I just enjoy his world and the yes. uh, I love like the desaturated color palette of the whole thing. It w- and there's some things that I think that it's. I had the both things true moment of I really enjoyed something. And on the one hand, I was like. I, there was something in me that was kind of like, hmm, I, I don't really like this at the same time, mm, but problematic. yes, exactly. This could be problematic in, and I don't think that they, that they realize that it could be problematic. I was like, is this just a me because we've been doing this podcast and how cast plays into it and, and how black people have been portrayed in films that there was a thing where I'm like, no, on one hand, I do think that this is funny. On the other hand, I'm there. I do wonder about this. All right. But it could just be a, a me thing. And then just the whole thing of it. Cause it's so meta that there's, so, and there's so much going on. And I know there's so many things that I missed. So that's what I say. So anyway, I casted with actors who were in asteroid city. So as Rupert, I have Tom Hanks. Yes. Okay. So this cast is going to skew a little older. As Brandon, I have Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. As Philip, I have Adrian Brody. Oh, he can do brooding. As Joan, I have Scarlett Johansson. Well, she's not going to like that you said you, you're uh, like a little older. Hey, she's pushing 40. She's going to like what she likes. <laughs> As Mr. Kentley, I have Jeffrey Wright. Yes. As Kenneth, I have Jason Schwartzman. Of course. As David, I have Rupert Friend. David. David was the murderer. Yeah, we only saw him getting killed. No, yeah, I was saying, yeah. And as Mrs. Wilson, I have Tilda Swinton. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. The only other person I would put for Mrs. Wilson is, who was the, um, the maid in our Doris Day movie, Pillow Talk? Wait, is it the and she was was that the woman that was also in um she she only did a few movies but they were just like she was a, a white lady, right? Yeah. And she was just like bang bang bang. Yeah. Oh yeah. We yeah. talked about her a bunch. She just was like, "Nah, I, I can I picture her face." And that and that the way she talked. Yeah, I'm blanking on the movies and stuff that she was in. Right, me too. I think she was in Miracle on 34th Street, maybe, as well. Because she was in a bunch of things. Because we were just like, oh, she was in this, this. And then she was like the um, like the guy that was in Deer Hunter. and like Fr- Thelma Ritter. Yeah, Thelma Ritter. Thelma Ritter. Yeah, yeah, just one of these people who, you look at their IMDb, they're in like only eight movies, but they're all like eight movies you've heard of. And you're just like, right. oh, my God. So that was my recasting because just the cast of Asteroid City is ridiculous. And if you're, it's crazy because I saw like the first Wes Anderson film I saw was Rushmore and that was his second film. And so it's just crazy to like how he has a, like such a following and then like to hear people who are younger than me talk about like the movies that. A lot of people like it was the Grand Budapest Hotel right. that they got into, and you're just like, oh man, I like basically the same age as this guy. It's right. crazy. Okay, so we are to our tasties. I already did mine. Yeah, because I have the the camera dude. Um, now in the trailer for the movie. <gasps> yes. Did you watch it? I didn't. I wow. did. It showed Janet and David on a park bench before leaving to Brandon's to Brandon's house with a voiceover saying, "That's the last time Janet Ooh. and the audience will see him." Oh, I like that. Yeah, it was basically it was basically they like Alfred Hitchcock. I, oh yeah, he probably he shot do... it. Yeah, but they shot this for the trailer. So it's they're on a park bench and it's David is saying that he wants to get married and Janet is saying, why don't you wait until after school? And he only had like three months or maybe it was even yeah. a month. Wait, left. why don't you wait until you're 30 at least? <laughs> they couldn't at this time, teeny. It was the war. Everybody had to, to, to move by the seat of their pants. That's right. Had to reproduce. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and then he like he's like, oh, I'm going off to Brand. Like he mentions that he's going off to their apartment, and then it's the narrator is actually Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart who is like, right. That's the last time that they ever saw him. So I thought that was pretty crazy that yeah. the trailer. It's just Hitchcock being Hitchcock, man. Uh, the movie was banned in many cities because of the implied homosexuality. And I, I had a list, but I didn't write them down. I have it. Okay. So this came from the New York Times article I found November 21st, 1948. And it was called Censorship Ties Rope in Knots. By this is this is of the time in 1948 by thomas m Pryor, and so he said that um none of the seven states so there were seven states that could exercise censorship over movies they didn't find any cause to ban the film so these states were right new york pennsylvania kansas maryland massachusetts ohio and virginia as states they were like oh this is fine but locally there were different municipal authorities such as word oh man worcester massachusetts Mm -hmm. it's not pronounced how it's spelled and it irritates Mm. me new and new bedford massachusetts Spokane and Seattle, Washington, Atlanta and Memphis all refused to show the picture. But the interesting thing is that most of them refused to show the picture after the picture had been shown. And it was like, we have one more showing left. Because it's not like like today when there are multiplexes, you know, it was like in for like a week run or something. And like on the last day of the week, they're like, oh, we're shutting it down. And then Sioux City, Iowa, they just wanted the strangulation scene removed from the start of the film. So it was just these little municipalities and stuff. It was, well, I have a theory on that. But I bring this up. So we, like, rope is what we saw. You watch it. It's 1948. Think also then, during the war, during World War II, Alfred Hitchcock, he made propaganda films like other filmmakers had made, like Billy right. Wilder, um, you know, Ford and stuff. In June and July of 1945, he was the treatment advisor on a Holocaust documentary that used Allied forces footage of the liberation of concentration camps. Yeah. And it was assembled and produced by Sidney Bernstein, who was also the producer of Rope and a friend oh, of Alfred okay. Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And the goal of this was, that, as you can know, because Britain had been in the war way longer than we had. Mm-hmm. And they were making this and their goal was like, all right, we're going to broadcast this to the Germans so that y'all see what y'all did. Exactly. You, you know, I... Can you imagine me in this situation and I'm Britain? I, I would be indignant. And then I find out that y'all are doing this. Unbelievable. Um, but then it's also like, I think that they knew. And side note, tangent, I'm sorry. It's after hours. I was watching like um, the FDR thing you know, on History Channel where they mix in the talking heads and the recreated scenes and stuff. And they were talking about um, there was a concentration camp survivor and he said, 
he said that he saw like the allied forces like the planes going overhead and he always just wanted them to to bomb the con- he like he right. wanted them to bomb the concentration camps he just like, didn't care he just wanted it over just bomb them and because in the the documentary or whatever it is about FDR and stuff basically it was like the allies they knew that something was not right with that like I don't know the extent to how much they knew that like what the final solution was like what these concentration camps were but they knew that they existed and there were people in the um, administration and stuff who are like bomb the the railroad tracks and they're like well mm-hmm. if we bomb the railroad tracks they're just gonna overnight fix them and they're like we'll bomb bomb the concentration camps and they're like but they basically what this history channel take on that was because the one of the survivors was like just bom- like we don't we don't fucking care like we just we're already in hell. Exactly. Like, fucking bomb Take us. this out. Like, yeah. What the fuck? Like, just, like, end all of this. That they purposely didn't want to do that. They didn't want to bop dr- to drop bombs on the concentration camps because they didn't want the people who were left over after the Nazis were defeated to say, no, you all killed this many people. Like, you all bombed it. Like, they basically wanted a hands-off approach so that then when history came in and documented everything, it was like, we didn't do... Like, no, you can't say that the Allies bombed or any of this. This is the atrocities you all committed. This is what you did. And it was just very interesting because I've always heard, like, the... No, this is what you did. But to hear, like, a survivor be like... Mm -hmm we prayed for those allies and to have like the opposite take of that, of like, why didn't you just bomb us? Like, why didn't you? And even to, to like hear survivors of just being like, yeah, we didn't care at that. Like it was such hell that just, we just prayed that they would, that they bombed. Like they, we knew that they could see us. Why don't you just take us out of our misery? And that, that was a, oh, man, like, that's also true at the same time. It was, like, a crazy thing. So, sorry, I digress. Yeah, but, but that's, the- uh, I, uh, uh, because my dad liberated a couple concentration camps, and they were told they weren't allowed to take pictures. But he did because he knew that in generations to come, they, the Germans were going to deny yeah, they they say like, oh no. And why yeah. would I I it's just crazy that like he would have the foresight to think of why somebody would like deny all of that just given I don't know that he was an American and maybe knew a bit like I'm sure that he didn't put it I don't know if he put one and one together about like slavery and the lost cause no, and what that was, I don't but think so. But it's the same kind of thing of yeah, like, exactly. oh no, it w- really wasn't that bad. So yeah, my this this documentary that you know Hitchcock was a treatment advisor on, they assembled it using you know Allied forces of the liberations, and it was going to be broadcast. And then the British government saw the final cut and was like, "Yo, we can't show this to no, them. It's, it's too, too traumatic." It is, yeah. 
it's and too so much. yeah, and so it it ended up being unreleased until 1985 when an edited version appeared on the PBS Frontlines television show, and then in 2015 the fully restored cut known as German Concent- concentration camps factual survey. That's what it's mm. called. So then that's out there, and it contains a lot of the footage that now in 2023 that we've seen right you know in the different things but i just thought it was wild to think that this that there are people like in you know in the united states and segregated theaters and stuff that you're like no we can't show this and then meanwhile yeah there are all of these atrocities that like of what humans have actually done to humans of like you know it was just mm-hmm. an right. interesting juxtaposition yeah me. yeah Okay, um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock said this was a failed experiment because he wanted to do a one-take movie and he felt like it was a failed experiment. Well, I think he succeeded. I get well, what he I do too. I think because he because he did use there were some com- a few conventional cuts. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it worked in the fit. Like he's this isn't a play, so. Right. I could see how he w- could think like, oh, it was a failed experiment. There are probably things that he would have liked to have done better. But I think that it's it holds up remarkably I do well. Too. Mm-hmm. I do too. Um, okay, so the actor who played Brandon, John Dahl, Dahl w- was a gay person. And the actor who played Philip was a bisexual person in real life. <laughs> I'm sorry, that should not have been a pause there. Um, yeah, Canceled. I, I know. The screenwriter, author Lawrence, in the original play, Rupert, the uh, Jimmy Stewart character, had an affair with one of the murderers at the Ooh. school. Which one mm-hmm. do you think? I think Philip. Because Philip was so, although Brandon was so wanting to impress him, hmm, maybe he had an affair with all of them. I, that's what I thought too. Because he was also supposed to be in the play, he was 29 and a World War One veteran who oh. had walked with a cane. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of thought that he was, you know, the he wasn't equal, a saintly. Equal, he was yeah. equal opportunity uh, offender. It was a boy's school. Yeah. It's just boys will be boys. Oh, yeah. So those were my tasties. I have that the screenwriter. Laurent, that he called Jimmy Stewart's casting, quote, absolutely destructive. Quote, he's not sexual as an actor. Okay. Damn. All right. And that Jimmy Stewart himself even agreed of the Hitchcock films he did. This was his least favorite. Yeah, he, He said that he was miscast in the role. Now, the first choice to play this was Cary Grant. Yeah. Mm. And for Brandon, Montgomery Clift. Yeah. Which I don't think we've done any Montgomery Clift. We haven't, but he was a heartthrob. He was. And, you know, 
was he 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 used his he had inner torment because he had to hide a piece of himself and that's what gave him that uh angst the angst yeah that angst that people love so much and he mm-hmm. will if you know hollywood lore he was best friends with elizabeth taylor and he got into a horrific car accident and then his face was um different later because he was he was a very pretty man um let's see we have oh my god he's gorgeous oh yeah montgomery cliff was edward montgomery cliff hot wow he was a hot man a hot young fellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Google his. You. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stay here a minute. You go ahead. Yeah. Young Montgomery hmm. Cliff. Mm-hmm. Um. From 1958 to 1984, there were what were called the five lost Hitchcock films, and these films were unavailable due to rights issues. Um. Hitchcock bought the rights. And eventually left them to his daughter. And you couldn't basically see these films from 1958 to 1984. And it's funny when I name what they are because it's wild to me because we've seen most of them. One was The Trouble with Harry. I think that was his last film, Hitchcock's last film. The other was the 1950s version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, which we've done. Mm -hmm. Vertigo, Rear Window, and Rope. So these were considered huh. like yeah. lost for like thirty a good thirty oh, years. Wow. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see Hitchcock's cameo? No. In the very beginning. Yeah, he's Wa- walking down walking the street. Walking on the sidewalk. Oh, I miss it. Mm-hmm. So at the end, to get the sound of the the sirens approaching from the distance, mm-hmm. Hitchcock had an ambulance drive full speed approach the Warner Brothers gate and like have it come in, in through the gate and he had like microphones set up oh, so that wow. he could get See, people these days they don't know how easy they have it mm-hmm. exactly um and when they're talking about um the movies cuz you know how there's the the Atwater lady she's like oh that's something film that, that she's talking about, and then the, and at one point they mentioned like, oh, I like James Mason. James Mason. I know. I went. I did that. And I eleven did. years later, James Mason was cast as the villain in North by Northwest, and that something film that they're talking about is actually another Hitchcock film, Notorious, with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. Oh. Mm. And then I have. When Janet says that she works for Allure magazine, yes, mm-hmm. Allure magazine didn't exist until 1991. That was That's just a made it up. Oh, yeah, that was just it. a made up name. I was like, damn, burn for Allure magazine. That's what or, I like, thought a piece too. Of shit. Wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me see if they're okay. And then I came up. So so, um. You know, we mentioned how Laurent was like, oh, yeah, Rupert's character was gay. Not really sure if Jimmy Stewart knew that he was gay. And Mm -hmm. Jimmy Stewart was 
a bachelor until he settled down in his 40s and then he got married and had a family so i wondered i was like well were there any rumors about jimmy stewart no because there's an article called there's an article by andrew gumble called the day hollywood sent james stewart to a brothel to make a man of him oh Oh, lord so it was the ninth picture. It's the 1930s, and Louis B. Mayer, who was, you know, MGM, yeah. he forced Jimmy Stewart to visit a brothel so people wouldn't gossip that he was gay. What? And there's, there's, unlike other Hollywood stars, there's absolutely no evidence that James Stewart was gay or even bisexual. He had affairs with Loretta Young and Marlene Dietrich, which Oof. isn't to say, but basically there's no rumors out there in the rumor mill um he to me it just sounds like my man was enjoying being (laughs) Stewart in his 20s and 30s in Hollywood he married a divorcee named Gloria McLean when he was 40 so you know quote settled down um but when he was 25 years old in the 30s MGM and this is the studio system in the 30s MGM like the studios pretty much owned you. Oh, yeah. And they yeah, would make yeah. things disappear because it was about the box office. Um, so an MGM scout said, quote, Jim, if you don't go and give a manly account of yourself at least a few times, Mare and the others will think you're gay. Oh, wow. So Louis B. Mayer actually owned a private brothel just off of MGM's lot because it was a discreet wow. locale. For talent to misbehave which it kind of makes sense if you think of it because they control everything and here's a place where you can go get your rocks off and we can guarantee that there aren't going to be the tabloid gossip columnists or whatever Well, it seems like that's not where he needed to go then he needed to go somewhere where everybody was going to see him no but that's the thing they would plant the story so in this case like uh, if somebody else went they wouldn't plant the stories but in this case because he was like 25 and Got not it. with yeah. somebody that they would be like oh Jim, james did you see him jimmy putting mm-hmm. in the putting in the time at the old mm-hmm. brothel look at him um but he was also in the war so that took some some years but this was before the war, like oh. in the 30s and stuff. Never mind. So, because the thing was is that if stars, if their troubles were exposed, and that could be a myriad of different troubles. If you, like they say that, um, I think, who was it, Clark, Clark Gable, you know, didn't he, he got drunk, I think, and like killed a man, like basically manslaughter, you know, well. the car. They, they, they hushed that up. Betty, oh, yeah. Betty Davis, her second husband, questionable things happened with that. They hushed that up. The because, Ray Donovan, that's where Ray Donovan came from. Yeah, to. exactly. That's where they, they got all of this because if if the if the troubles were exposed to the public, then people wouldn't go to their movies. And Lana Turner. And, exactly, mm-hmm. that's taking money yeah. out of the box office. Yep. We got a box office star. This is why, you know, it would... You know, people like John Dahl, 
there are rumors about them. Mm-hmm. So that's why they ne- didn't become household names and put in all the movies right. because there was, you know, talk and chatter. So this is why, like, James Stewart, when he was 25, was like, seriously? And they're like, yeah. And he had, because the studio had all that power, he had to go and put some time into the brothel situation, which is just, it's, it's wild. Yeah. Wild times. Um, and that's, that's what I have. Well, this has been Rope, which, um, I am aware of a lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies. I was not aware of this one and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did too. It's, it's just great if you're into true crime and just the, because it's basically seeing well, from an opposite perspective, what we see mm-hmm. in the date lines, you know? Exactly. Because exactly. It, it is. you see in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I enjoyed. Well, we are crime junkies, so I did too. I really, I liked it. And so uh, next week. Next week, we're not going to go too far off of the crime, I don't think. Ooh. Okay. I don't think we've done this before. I know we haven't done it when I was here. I did look over a spreadsheet and I couldn't see it, but I'm always worried that I've missed it. <laughs> but but again, you have that. You have the Yeah, uh... but this isn't what I would want to do that for. So if okay. you've watched, if we've done this, I have a silly little backup. Oh. We're going to 1956, a film noir. I love my film noir. Um, it has to do with murder, I believe. Uh-huh. Murder, 56. The I got this from a list. You know, what I really loved about Rope is the runtime. Hour and mm-hmm. 21 minutes. Uh-huh. You're welcome. So I was looking at a list of the best films under 90 minutes. <laughs> I love it. Because, you know, that's the perfect attention span. It is. It is. What else can I tell you about this? Who's in it? Oh, that's a good place to start, huh? Who is in this movie? Sterling Hayden. Sterling Hayden. That sounds familiar. Colleen Gray. Colleen Gray. Vince Edwards. Vince Edwards. He was Dr. Kildare. No, he wasn't Dr. Kildare. Ben Casey. Oh, he ben, was ben Casey. Okay. He's, J- a brood- He's a brooding character. J.C. Flippin. Marie Windsor. Joe Sawyer. So I'm going to go with we haven't done it. Okay. We have not. Um. Okay. Says it's faultless and enjoyable. <gasps> Plotted with the kind of Swiss watch precision and attention to detail that would eventually get this director labeled Hollywood's most notorious perfectionist. Oh, notorious perfectionist. Even though he was just starting out, blank instantly oh, mastered the crime. I know genre. who it is. Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. The killers. Yeah. Killing. Yeah. The, the killing. killing. The killing. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. I always wanted to see this. It's about 
career criminal Johnny Clay recruits a sharpshooter, a crooked police officer, a bartender, and a betting teller named George for one last job before he goes straight and marries his fiance. Oh, wow. But when he yeah. tells his wife about the scheme to steal millions from the racetrack where he works, she hatches a plot of her own. <gasps> I don't know if we've done any stand. Have we? We haven't done Doctor Strange, Love, or because his movies went way. That's why it's so wild that this is because his movies. But didn't you do later... a Clockwork Orange? Yes, that's true. Yes, we, we did, did. A Clockwork Orange. We didn't do what? Two thousand one, with... A Space Odyssey, Barry Lyndon, Doctor Strange, Love. Lolita, Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut. Mm. That was a freak show. I mean, it's got 96% on the tomato meter and an audience score of 92%. Oh. Looks like you can watch it on Prime, Paramount Plus. Oh, Paramount Plus. How nice. And it is only an hour and 23 minutes. Excellent. See, I can watch it twice. Yes, you can watch it twice. Okay, well done. Well, from one murder to another, people. Mm. Because we are murderino. Sure. Shout out to Karen and Georgia. Shout out. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that has been rope. And next week, it next week at some point in next Mm -hmm. week is. Mm -hmm. The killings. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it with an S? Is it multiple? Um, a singular killing. Just a singular one. Singular oh, killing. killing. One. Got it. Got I mean, it. I think yeah. So there's maybe only one person killed. Okay. Or it could be one killing that took out multiple. Well, it takes people. out a lot of people. We don't. You'll know. You'll have to listen next week no to find idea. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go, listeners. Oh, bye.